0: Sales Tuners, Episode 6. John Barrows, modern sales trainer for leading tech companies.
1: At the end of the day, we all sell ourselves all day long. And and if you do it for the right reasons and you're passionate about it, then sales is the greatest profession on the planet.
0: This is
1: Sales Tuners with Jim Brown. The only weekly show where we talk about the behaviors, attitudes, and techniques that get sales reps and entrepreneurs to
0: grow their revenue from, from $1 million to more than $10 million in just two years. All I do is win, 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 no matter what. Got money on my mind, I can never get enough. And every time I step up in the building, everybody's hands go up. It's time, it's time, it's time. It's Sales Sooners time, I'm Jim Brown, your host, and our weekly inspiration comes from Zig Ziglar, who said, people say that motivation doesn't last. Well, neither does bathing, that's why we recommend it daily. Today I get the pleasure of talking with John Barrows, a no BS sales trainer to some of the world's leading tech companies like Salesforce, LinkedIn, and Box. John told me he drank his way through four years of college while getting a marketing degree, and when he got out of school he realized it was useless and moved into sales and learned the hard way at DeWalt and Xerox. In 2000, John started a company with some high school buddies selling IT services where he made 400 dials per week for five straight years, ultimately leading to an acquisition by Staples. He's had the chance to work with his business idol, Jack Welch, and recently tweeted a picture of himself with Tom Brady while wearing an incredible custom-made New England Patriots suit, complete with matching bow tie. Before we dive in, I wanna say a quick thank you to our sponsors a big thanks goes out to the team at octave for helping make this podcast possible we all know that a better sales process creates a better buying experience and octave is transforming the way sales documents are created distributed and tracked check out a demo at octave.com that's octiv.com all right quick warning guys we did go a little long in this episode at just over 50 minutes but there was no way i was editing out anything be sure to check out all the links and show notes at salestuners.com slash Barrows. And now let's get to the conversation where John shed some light on how he fell into sales.
1: Just like everybody else, they get their degree in whatever it is, because there's very few degrees in sales, even though there's, there's a little bit more of them these days. And, you know, didn't know what I wanted to do. So that's why I just kind of fell into sales. I didn't want to do what I got my degree in. And, you know, there was an opportunity with DeWalt Power Tools, which is a tools that I loved so going out there and representing them was not too hard and just kind of evolved into sales one step after the next and got my real formal sales education at Xerox trying to sell those things which was brutal uh, and then the, the the startup at 23 years old with a few friends that was that was fun and uh, and challenging and all at the same time I mean, really trying to go out there with no fun we had no funding no money anything so we had to go and, and figure it out as we went along and I think that's why my sales career my education in sales really uh, escalated pretty quickly because I was just exposed to so much stuff so fast and got out there so many so often so um, as far as something that that uh, passionate about outside of sales i mean obviously you know my daughter and my family and my wife i think uh i travel so much all around the world most of the weeks i'm, I'm actually jumping on a plane today and uh so i'm gone most of the week my daughter's five and a half years old almost six And my passion is trying to help connect with her and and develop her so that she can be in a position where in the future she can be successful. So, I mean, art is another passion of mine. I see you get, uh, I was looking through your profile, noticed that you were third place and top artist or something like that. And one of the things that you were doing. So a little commonality there, but yeah, I I paint a lot. Um, That was actually my first major in college, which I realized I wasn't going to make any money doing. So that's why I got into business
0: very nice very nice yeah that was a long time ago so uh, but uh, definitely fun <laughs> you, you talked about Dewalt you talked about Xerox and and I've seen some of the stuff you've written before uh, it, it seems to me you know you, you, the way you said it is sales is the number one profession in the world and yet none of us are formally taught. And, you know, what I've kind of seen is if you go back and you look at Xerox and IBM and Oracle, those places have what I consider like a finishing school. Right. So after you get out of college, they spend quite a bit of time investing in that education. But Mm -hmm. tell me about that. Why are we not training these people to actually formally do what we're supposed to do?
1: Yeah, I mean, it is depressing to me and it it really wasn't a realization until I truly got into sales and understood the challenges because it's the number one profession in the world, like you said, and, and none of us are taught how to do it and so we're the least educated in what is arguably the most important part of any business. I mean, I don't care how cool your product is, how awesome it is, if you can't sell it, it doesn't matter. I mean, unless you're selling a commodity and you can throw it out there on, you know, Amazon and get people to buy it for 5 bucks, right? If you're selling anything that has any type of value or, you know, complex sale, it's the most important thing that drives any business. It dictates hiring, it dictates strategy and everything. And yet we are the C students. And so <laughs> I think that you know the uh, looking back at the reasoning, I, you know, I think it's because historically a lot of people would would consider sales an art form. It's kind of either you had it or you didn't, right? There's always the the mentality of that oh the slick sales guy that just is able to say the right stuff and manipulate the situation, and there's only a certain amount of people that can do that and I think if you look at sales that way, then ugh, you know then who would ever want to be in sales by the way, but if you look at it as more of a science and a process you can start to realize that you can educate people on the foundational pieces of this. And I just think it's taken a long time for the education world to understand that there's far more science involved in selling than there is art form. And you do have to have a personality, you have to connect with people, but at the end of the day, we're all sales reps. It's it's whether you consider it a profession or not. Because you know, my sister, for example, she's in nonprofits and everything. I love her to death, but and she, you know, she hates sales reps. And a while ago, she got a job, and I said, "Nancy, you you do realize you're in sales, right?" And she said, "Well, no, I'm not." I said, "Yeah, you are." I go, D-D-? "I'm like, you just got a job, right?" She said, yeah, I go, did did they did you just submit your uh, resume and did they call you up and say, congratulations, welcome aboard? She goes, well, no, I go, did you have to interview for it? She said, yes. I said, well then, congratulations, you're in sales. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, you're pretty good at it because they hired you. So, you know, she's like, oh, I'm mad at But at the end of the day, we all sell ourselves all day long. And And if you do it for the right reasons and you're passionate about it, then sales is the greatest profession on the planet. When done right, when yep. done wrong, it's the worst. And that's why when people ask me, John, you know, favorite sales movies, you know, Glenn Glenn Ross, Boiler Room, Wolf of Wall Street. To me, those are the worst sales movies I've ever seen in my life. It's everything that's wrong about selling. You know, you want to watch some great sales movies? Go watch Pursuit of Happiness, or go watch my favorite, which is Tommy Boy, right? Oh, yeah. the greatest sales movie of all time. So that's that's sales done right for the right reasons.
0: Yeah, Those other movies are definitely entertaining, but, but you're right. It's that, that uh, used car salesman persona that uh, the professionals in the world are trying to, uh, to shed that, that light. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Talk to me to, a little bit about uh, your sales process today. Uh, w- with what you're selling today, how does someone decide to buy from you? Can you walk through that process?
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's kind of a lot easier for me these days because um, you know I think the most important thing any of us can do is is prospect and prospect consistently. You know that's why actually out of all the training that I do, the number one thing that I focus on or the one thing that most of my revenues come from is prospecting, teaching kids how to do outbound calling into key accounts and stuff like that. Because with a big fat pipeline, you, don't, you know the rest of the stuff becomes a lot easier: negotiation, objection handling, discounting, those type of things. I want to put myself in a position where I want your business. I don't need your business because if i if I want your if I need your business i I do some shady stuff, right? I discount at the end of the month I, I try to push it when it's not ready. but when I I want your business, you know I sell the right way. And so for me, how people engage, I mean, I get a lot of referrals, obviously, with my client base being Salesforce, LinkedIn, Box, Dropbox, you know, Aptus, Okta, like all a lot of the tech SaaS companies in San Francisco. There's a there's a referral piece there that's I'm always working. Um, But I also do lead gen marketing automation, try to drive inbound leads. And ultimately, the first stage is really just qualifying, you know, what kind of sales training are you looking for? If you're looking for a big process or some huge methodology, something like that, then I'm not really your guy. So I try to filter that up front and then once they get to the stage where it's like yes this is you know we need prospecting and we fit this profile whatever then it's you know the simple call call to to really understand where they are as a business and why they're trying to address whatever the situation is what the true need is of the business um you know when it comes to qualification i think BANT. you know if we go old school BANT budget sure. authority need timeline i think that's pretty outdated for more reasons than one but the only thing i really care about in vant is is the need is there a need and whether they know it or not you know my job is to uncover what that is because they might not need it today but tomorrow they might and based on my experience in business and seeing where this stuff makes a difference and where it doesn't you know, my questions all revolve around that because when I can find that specific area where I know this product, you know, my training can hit a home run, that's when I start to, you know, challenge your sales stuff, push a little bit if I need to. Um, but the the process is, you know, get the lead in, whether it's a referral or inbound lead generation, qualify them, focus on the need, share some insights to get them thinking about things a little bit differently. Uh, potentially set them up. I have an online portal that has all my stuff in video format. So I usually light that up to give them a sense of my style and also uh, some of the content and then schedule a follow-up call, get them locked in for that to find next step, which I think is one of the most important things we can do in sales and uh, you know, and try to close them to see if it makes sense or not. And I I don't discount, I don't negotiate when it comes to pricing. I know my price, I know the value. So again, it's because my pipeline is nice and full that I can do that.
0: Yeah and, and like you said, you, they want your business, right? You don't need it, they want it, and it does make a world of difference. John, as you're talking about the behaviors, right? the, the things that you do uh, you talked about prospecting and how important it was, and it mm-hmm. just it, it amazes me that the kids these days they don't want to do it, right? They just mm-hmm. expect to have this full pipeline, and they sure. just get to do all the you know the fun stuff, if you will. But if they just learn to pick up the phone and reach out and open up a new opportunity, the world becomes their oyster.
1: It really does. I mean, I never, you know, what's frustrating now is, you know, for instance, my, my former CEO, my friend who we started the first company with, he, know, he was a CTO, so he's a technical guy. And he saw me, you know, do what I did, which was make $400 a week, go to networking events, go to networking groups. You know, I was working six, seven days a week, working 12, 15, 16 hours a day for the first five, six years. And I was out there making it happen because I figured the only thing I could control at that point in my career was my effort. So I was just going to work harder than everybody else. And, you know, I wasn't good at the other stages as far as negotiating the best deals and those type of things. So I figured, hey, let's just do the volume play here. You know, there's a better way to do it these days with, you know, more strategic approaches. But I think just the work ethic of getting out there, picking up the phone, making it happen, it solves a lot of problems and also helps you develop a lot faster. I mean, prospecting if you look at the conversion ratios at every stage of the sales process, prospecting to meeting is by far the lowest, right? Sure. I mean, if you're in the one to 5% range, as far as response rates, uh, you're, you're doing great. And so that's why people don't avoid it, but they also avoid it because I think they just go into it with a bad mentality of, Oh God, I got a prospect. And just like anything, if you go in with a bad mentality on it, you're going to produce bad results. And so you definitely have to get yourself in the right mindset to do it and also try to make it interesting in some way, shape or form. If you're just going to blast through 50 you know, 50 dials a day or something like that and go through the motions and crank out template emails, I, I personally don't understand the point, right? Because I can have marketing automation do that way better than you can. Right. But if you're going to take some time, look on somebody's website, come up with a reason to reach out to them, try different approaches you know, and learn something, you can actually make it pretty interesting and produce results at the same time that'll benefit everybody involved.
0: Yeah, totally. And and you've already started to allude to this a little bit, but is there a habit or a routine, John, that you have to do, or you find yourself doing every single day?
1: Yeah, as a matter of fact, I talk a lot about uh, routine and how important that is. You know, I've been doing a lot of research and readings on on successful people and what do they do on a regular basis and it all a lot of them have the routines. If you think of any sports player, right? They they all get to the, you know, arena at a certain time, they stretch out a certain way, they take a certain amount of shots, listen to a playlist or something like that. And I I have something similar because my morning routine used to be you know getting in checking my fantasy leagues getting all pissed off about that type of stuff or you know my dad to this day he still reads the morning paper right he takes the physical morning paper grabs it reads it whatever and that's fine but the problem is is that I'd say 75% of the morning paper I could care less about and so what I try to do is my I change my morning routine so I can do a little bit of high quality prospecting every single day. And, and I'll share with you how I do it, but why I do it is it addresses a big challenge. I see a lot of sales reps have out there, which is time management, you know, reps are being asked to make 50 dials. And so they're like, well, I can't do the quality. I can't do the research. Cause if I do that, it'll drop my numbers and then I'll get in trouble. And I understand that. Uh, however, I think it all starts with tearing out your accounts for instance. So you tear out your accounts, tier ones, tier twos, and tier threes, right? You get your great average and crap. I recommend everybody have a list of top 25 tier one accounts that they're constantly trying to get into, right. And trying to listen to. And with 25, uh, the reason I picked 25, cause those are the ones I'm going to put on all the social listening tools. Right. So, uh, there's obviously LinkedIn sales navigator, Google alerts. Uh, there's one of my favorite products called Owler, O W L E R. And, and also other tools like, you know, Facebook, I, I have a separate Facebook account for business and I, and I just like all my top tier accounts on Facebook and Twitter, I follow him on Twitter. And so every morning, I auto load. You know, I use Firefox, and um, you know how you can auto load the bookmarks. Mm-hmm. Well, from seven thirty to eight thirty every morning, what I do is I those all those bookmarks pop up, and I just as I drink my coffee, I just kind of scan through data feeds, and I'm looking for things on my top twenty five accounts that I can make connections to. So you know, they opened up a new office, they launched a new product, there was a quote from an executive, whatever, and I might only fire off two or three, four real high quality, very targeted emails to my target accounts but by doing that every day it helps me keep that pipeline full of really high quality opportunities and the the last thing I'll add to that is the education piece of social selling because you know that that side that I just talked about there's two sides of social selling one is listening to the social world for the triggers which is what I just explained there the other is building your own personal brand and doing the whole you know thought leader stuff but not pretending like you're a thought leader You know, for me, becoming a thought leader is all about educating yourself first, obviously. You can't share thoughts unless you have them first. And so I use products like Feedly, you know, F-E-E-D-L-Y, which is that RSS aggregator, where I can go in and just start to follow, you know, blogs of people that I respect in certain industries that I'm focused on. So SaaS, for instance, is an industry I, I focus heavily on. And so I go follow the top thought leaders in SaaS um, and, and just listen to what's going on in the SaaS world, staying up to date on that stuff and trying to educate myself first. And then when I find something that I find interesting, you know, I take the extra two seconds to put some context or why I think it's interesting and share it out on the social world or maybe share it with a couple of key prospects and say, hey, I came across this article, it's really interesting and this is why I thought you might find that interesting, right? Mm-hmm. So in one hour, once a day, I've probably sent out three or four really high quality emails, I've read a couple of articles, I've posted a few things out there And, you know, I built my brand, I filled my pipeline and I've educated myself in just one hour a day. And that is what's really helped me stay on top of things uh, and and get better every day, too.
0: And regardless of what's in your pipeline, that's something you're doing every day so that it's continuously Mm -hmm. being fed. Absolutely. Yeah, because it's kind of
1: like, you know, it's kind of like looking for a job or networking or any of that stuff. Most people, for instance, only network when they need a job. So, when they get fired, all of a sudden that person goes out, hey, I want to grab coffee with you and everything like that. And if the only time you ever hmm. come out, reach out to me is when you need a job, the likelihood of me engaging with you is not high. So, that's why, you know, if you reach out to me nor- randomly, say, hey, John, I want to grab coffee, just see how you've been with no ask, you no, know, hey, I want to, you know, I, I, need a, I need help here. When you do need help, I'm much more, you know, willing to do it. It's the same thing with prospecting. Most people only prospect when their pipeline is empty. And so and, and that becomes a very almost a panic stricken thing where it's like, oh, my God, you know, I just had a great quarter. I closed out everything. I crushed my numbers. I hit my accelerators and all that other stuff. And then they look at their pipeline and they're like, oh, my God. Uh, yeah, OK. And so that's why they blast out a million emails because they think, well, I got to get the volume up here. And they they just litter their territory with crap. And really do themselves and their clients a disservice by doing that because the likelihood of them actually reengaging at a later date or, you know, with a quality approach is not going to be high at that point. So that's why that prospecting is so important to me on a daily basis. I mean, right now, for instance, I'm I'm booked solid all the way through November for on-site training gigs, right? But I still prospect because it allows me again to sit there and say look i want your business because i know this is a good fit if it's not a good fit i turn down more business than i bring on these days because I, what i'm searching for is the home run i want to make sure that when i get engaged with somebody it's an absolute home run because it is a small you know world here and word gets out right so when i do a training for somebody i if the if the reps walk out of there going yeah that was okay you know then i'm uh, i'm going to be mediocre at best but if the reps walk out of there saying, "Wow, that was incredible. That made a significant impact. I'm going to see the results out of the gate." That type of thing, then the referrals start to flow pretty fast.
0: Well, and it's it's interesting too. You know, as you talk about that, it's kind of a little bit of a scarcity mentality. If if you tell a prospect, "Hey, I'm booked up through November," that's going to make them want to work with you more because, like, oh my gosh, this guy's in demand. I better get on his list yep. now
1: yeah exactly and you know i think though to me i think the most powerful close if you will uh is the walkaway close oh yeah the one where somebody's pushing 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 and you're just like you know what at this point it doesn't look like it makes sense for us to make you know do business together you know i'm going to respectfully remove myself from consideration on this point you know on this one and and you can feel if you've shown the value like if you've uncovered the need you've shown the value of your solution and and they're pushing too hard and you just say all right never mind you can feel that that power shift right they're like whoa wait a minute You, you don't Want. It's like, no, I, again, I don't need your business here. I, I, I think you're a really good fit and I know I can make an impact, but if you're going to try to play hardball here, good luck, you know, yeah. go
0: find somebody else. I love it. I love it. John, I want to move on and talk a little bit about uh, attitude. And to me, that's just how you feel about what you're doing. And so as we get into that, like, what do you think is the biggest thing that holds salespeople back from hitting their goals?
1: Uh, well, first of all, not having them. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's shocking to me how many sales reps do not actually write down goals. I think one of the most important things that, that any sales rep can do in their career is set daily, weekly, monthly, annual goals and, and really look – You know, I used to kind of roll my eyes at the where do you want to be in five years question – but now, I mean, maybe it's because I'm 40 years old or whatever, but now I think it's really critical to look a little bit further down the road and ask yourself, where do you want to be? And I don't mean in the company, right? I mean, you know, in the in usual the, usually, I don't want to be a manager and that. No, but like what kind of personally, what kind of lifestyle do you want to be living in the next five years? What kind of money do you want to make? You know, do you want to have kids? The, those type of things from a personal standpoint, where do you want to be? And then- help, you know, figure out the components of your career that can help you get there. And, and so that to me is, and, and obviously they have to be smart goals, right? Specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and timely. You can't set a goal. I want to get better. Right. So, or you shouldn't. Um, so I think that's the first thing that prevents them is not having them. Um, the second one is just, I think, um, a genuine belief in, in what you're doing. And because I think the most important thing that any of us need to have to be successful in sales specifically is a belief in what we're doing. Because if you don't believe in what you're doing, I mean, sales is a brutal profession, All right? Just in general, it is a brutal profession. It is a thousand times harder if you don't believe in what you do. Right. If you don't think it makes a difference, or you're just doing it for a commission check. And this is, by the way, this is why, you know, again, Glengarry, uh, Boiler Room, Wolf of Wall Street, those people didn't care about what they were selling. They were just selling it to make up to make commissions, right? They could they could care less. And that only lasts for so long. Um, but when you genuinely believe in what you're doing and, and that it makes a difference, then you you have a passion and a drive to go find people that you can make that difference for. And then that leads to helping you achieve your goals. And everything else, because, you know, once you stop worrying about your commission and you start con- concentrating more on the client's needs and finding that right fit for where your solution can, can make a true difference, your commissions end up going through the roof, right? Because people can, can. somebody told me this once, I thought it was a great quote that uh, sales is the transfer of enthusiasm. Oh, wow. Right? It's it's because I believe that strongly in what I do that if if you even kind of fit close to the mold of somebody that I've helped before, my job is to transfer my enthusiasm over to you, because sales is still somewhat of an emotional thing that gets backed up by facts. And and my job is to transfer that enthusiasm over to you so that you can get even a little bit as excited as I am so we can then do some business and, and do some fun things together.
0: You said a couple of things there, John, that I just want to dive a little bit further into. You talked about the beliefs of a salesperson and then you also talked about having those goals about the type of person they want to be, the income they want to have and, and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I found uh, sometimes with myself, sometimes with uh, reps that I've worked with, this mental blocker about what money means prevents them from being willing to ask for it in a, in a sales cycle. Have you seen that or?
1: Yeah, I mean, we, we, well, absolutely. I mean, it's just evident when somebody, when whenever sales rep presents pricing, I mean, pricing is always the most uncomfortable part of the sales process for a rep. And it's it kills me because, you know, say something's $10,000 or whatever. You know, when when asked, hey, John, how much does this cost? That should be the answer. It's $10,000. But it's never that it's never $10,000, right? The answer is always, well, it's $10,000, but it really depends on, you know, if or, uh, or, uh, and then, you know, and by the way, by doing that, look, I might've talked to your competition, right? And I, I might've heard 20,000, 30,000, whatever, right? And all of a sudden I heard 10,000 from you and I was like, wow, that's actually pretty, pretty good. Right. But as soon as the word but comes out of your mouth, you know, I'm not paying $10,000 anymore. You just gave me an objection before I had one. And so people are very uncomfortable asking and talking about money because to your point, you know, they they don't have really a true understanding or appreciation for the true value that their product brings. And I think that's the key because to me you know $10,000 is nothing if i'm going to be able to make $100,000 off of what you just sold me. You know, i will go find that money. And and i think that's people just need to get comfortable presenting the information, understanding the value that they bring and and then sticking to the the pricing discussion so they can justify that value. The problem is is we we've, we've kind of conditioned our prospects in a lot of ways to expect the discount. Um, to expect something at the end, right, the end of the month, the end of the quarter, because we make price a, a driving factor here. But if you do your job and you ask the right questions at the beginning of the sales process to really, truly uncover what the client's needs are and align your solution to their priorities and where they're trying to go as a business, when pricing comes up, you should be able to justify it pretty strong if you've done your job earlier on.
0: So let's just uh, keep going with that. I want to move into the the technique, right? How you do what you do now, but Mm -hmm. you you talked about value and you Mm -hmm. talked about uncovering the real opportunity, the real pain. How do you do that? How do you specifically, especially with a guarded prospect, how do you uncover that real pain?
1: Yeah. I mean, it depends, right? Because at the beginning, first of all, just to get them to to talk to you in the first place. And then there's the qualification and then there's the actual presentation if you want to bucket it. Um, the initial, you know, I think there's similar themes throughout, but the initial, just to get the person to talk to you, it's not about seeing how great your solution is and how awesome, you know, leading provider of any of that crap. To me, it's all about use case and, and sharing examples of other people like me that you've had, you've made an impact for. And I want to stay away from stuff like marketing, you know, verbiage, like on average, our clients see or up to wave 30, you know, that type of, that's marketing, we'll let them have that. What I want to be able to reach out to somebody says, hey, look, you, you fit a very similar profile to another company that we're working with. As a matter of fact, we showed this specific company how to drive these type of results, and I'd like to talk to you about it. So, cause you got to show somebody when you're reaching out to them in the first place that there's something in it for them, right? Cause time is the most valuable asset any of us have. And if you want my time, it's going to be pretty clear that email or voicemail, they, that I'm going to get some value out of this. And if not, and it's not just so you can ask me some questions so you can figure out what to sell me, you know, share some insights, some examples, uh, some results, those type of things. So I think that's on the, on the front side is to get that skeptic to start paying a little bit more attention to you. And also just adding value to them without even trying to sell them, right? Just say, Hey, I came across this article, this is where social selling comes into play and, you know, challenge sales stuff, like lead with insights, those type of things to say, Hey, here's a report that I came across. This is why I think it's important. I thought you might get some value out of this. Here you go. And not saying, Hey, let's talk about it, but just trying to add value to your world based on what I know about you. So that is to try to get the skeptic to even talk to you in the first place. And then once you have that qualification call and you have that very guarded person, um i i do want to make a distinction here between above and below the power line below the power line are people that usually don't make decisions right they're the people that can say no all day long but can never say yes above the power line are the people that can have influence on decisions or decision makers and i think the skeptic approach on either you know is different based on them based on where they fall. The, I find the biggest challenge being the person that's way below the power line that doesn't really have any insights about the business and you know there being the roadblock there. And because I think one of the hardest things you can do in sales, well, the hardest things to try to do in sales is go over somebody's head without pissing them off. Sure. And, and the best way that I do that Um, And also uncovering need and creating urgency. The other factor there I think is one of the top three things hardest to do in sales is actually creating urgency when it's seemingly not there. And to me, both of those are resolved by aligning with priorities. Because at the end of the day, if I can't align my my solution with some of the top two or three priorities of the business, then good luck selling anything. Good luck creating urgency or any of that stuff. And I don't just mean the priorities of the person that I'm talking to. I mean the priorities of the business. Like when your CEO stood up in the beginning of the year, what did they say the top two or three things that they were focused on this year? Because at the end of the day, if I can't tie my solution to that, it's not even really worth us having this conversation and so to go over somebody's head without pissing them off my favorite approach is to ask them questions that they don't know the answers to and I don't mean that from an insulting standpoint I don't want to just insult your intelligence here but I need to know this information so that I can make sure that my value proposition aligns and so that's why the research I do prior to that qualification call makes all the difference um if i obviously i want to research the business and what they're doing so i can ask very good questions around that and try to uncover need based on my questioning there or if nothing else just the the person the persona of the person i'm reaching out to so because if you're a cio in the healthcare industry you have different priorities than cios in the manufacturing industry and if i
0: understand
1: what those are i can kind of speak that language And instead of saying stuff like, oh, tell me about your priorities, right, and getting very vague answers, I can say, you know what, you know, we're we're working with other CIOs in the healthcare industry who are telling us that their top priorities are X, Y, and Z. Well, those those are the same priorities you're faced with right now. And even if they're not, they tend to, it tends to open up, like if you show you at least know that person's world a little bit, it tends to open up the conversation a little bit more. So, you know, going back to your question about being guarded, my research prior to the questions that I ask. And the insight that I share helps me really get somebody to open up a little bit more. And obviously, kind of the fundamentals of asking open-ended questions versus closed-ended questions, asking layering questions and seeing. You know, tell me a little bit more about that. Could you explain to me how those type of things tends to open up people a little bit more to have a better conversation?
0: I love a couple of things you said there. One is uh, never let someone tell you no, who doesn't have the power to tell you yes. Uh, when, when I learned that in sales, it was critical for me. Um, but then the other one is just like almost like there at the end, you're talking about being naive. Honestly, you actually may know the answer. You may know exactly what they're talking about. But if you just say, hey, can you just tell me a little bit more about that? It's amazing where that prospect will take your conversation. Mm-hmm. Totally.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I almost never take an answer for face value anymore. You know, I'll ask a question and they'll give me an answer. I'll be like, all right, could you? Well, first of all, let me let me rephrase that, you know, active listening stuff, push that back to you. When I heard you said this or whatever. But, you know, I'm always digging a little bit deeper. And, and this goes through almost every training there is out there. And right? I noticed you were a Sandler guy. Yep. I mean, the, you know, the three layers of pain, right? The pain funnel. Yeah, well, it's like, you know, there's that primary pain and then there's the person, you know, the company pain and then the actual personal pain. And what you're trying to do is get to that level so you can really make, you know, quantify what that looks like. And that's through layering questions, reverse questioning, those type of things.
0: Yeah, absolutely. John, you started to allude to some of this, but I want to go uh, objection handling, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. Definitely asking open-ended questions starts to even remove that. But once you've been at this for a while, especially selling the same product or same service for quite a while, you start to know all the objections that are going to come your way. (laughs) What do you do? Do do you try to get out ahead of those uh, or do you let them come to you? Tell me about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's there's you know the main techniques on handling objections. There's there's a there's five of them, right? I, the five the, the main ones I know. You know, feel felt found. I totally understand how you feel about that. Other people felt the same way. What they found was, you know, my only recommendation for people on that one is don't use the words feel felt found. <laughs> uh, I remember being 23 years old. I busted that out on a BP. I was like, look, I totally understand how you feel about that. Other people felt as soon as the word felt came out of my mouth, he was like, look, kid, don't try the feel felt found approach on me. all wow, right? Nice. Wow, like, no, I'm sorry, but I just learned it. Um, anyway. but there's feel felt bound then there's the pre uh, then there's the uh, justification so when it comes to hey ten thousand dollars you out of your mind and instead of backing away from it you go right at it no this is exactly why it's 10 grand uh then there's the clarification again you know what do you mean by we don't have budget for this what do you mean by that what do you mean you don't have budget do you mean you don't have any money or this isn't a budgeted thing or you're just spending money in other areas right then there's the um let's see uh justification clarification preemptive strike um And one of my favorites, which is, you brought it up, is the preemptive strike, where you know the objections coming based on the persona, and that type of stuff. And instead of them using it, you use it. So you you preempt it. You say, hey, you know what? A lot of people I talk to you in your position, they always say they don't have time for something like this. But after they realize, you know, after they see the functionality of our tool or whatever it is and realize how much time they could get back, by using this, they realize they don't have time not to talk to me, right? So you actually... you you use it. And now I don't want to give you an objection before there is one, but if I'm seeing the exact same objection on a regular basis from the exact same scenario, I'm going to jump on it and see what happens. I think the biggest thing with objection handling to me is is really being proactive about it as opposed to reactive about it. That's probably the the biggest takeaway. I mean, I do objection handling training But the biggest takeaway is earlier in my career, I would rely on my art form to to address objections and just wait and see what the objection was and then deal with it accordingly. However, I felt was appropriate at the time. And at that point in my career, I was just not good enough to be that dynamic with objection handling. And so that's why I didn't really deal with them that well. Now, I'm much more proactive. It's, you know, I'm walking into a situation. I'm going to go back to goal setting here, too. You know, before you go, before I go into meetings, I write down my goal. What am I, what's my goal of this meeting? What am I trying to get? Do I want a meeting with power? Do I want to get a signed contract? Do I want to get a defined next step? Do I want to understand what their true business needs? Those type of things. And I write it down and I figure out, okay, how am I going to ask for this? And what if they object to it? Like, what, what, what am I going to say? And so should I come with examples? Should I so to help with the feel felt found, right? Look, I get that one. You know, a lot of another client as a matter of fact had the exact same objection, but this is what happened when they said yes and, you know, take it from there. Do I do I have to have more information to back up, you know, with with data and statistics, those type of things if somebody's going to object? Do I have to know if they're going to object on price? If I know they're going to object on price, then obviously I should know what my competitors are charging, right? So how can I find that out? And I think it's just that mentality of, of being proactive about it and then just trying different things. I mean, the one the recommendation I'll give to everybody listening to this is split test everything you do. Split test everything you do. So, and when I say that A-B split test, right? Come up with write down, for instance, objection handling. Write down the one objection that you're getting hammered on and, and just having a really hard time dealing with. And come up with two different ways of of addressing that objection. So maybe the feel-felt-found approach and the clarification approach. And the next 10 times the objection comes up, you'll use the feel fail found approach. And the next 10 times, use the clarification approach. And then keep a simple back-and-napkin math of which one worked better. And and keep honing in on you know, what's working and what's not working. Um, and also pay attention to who you're dealing with the objection from. Is it somebody above or below the power line? So all that stuff is is, to me, necessary to help people deal with objections uh, because you see, you, you know, if I ask every rep, you know, write down your top five, they can all write them down. Right. I don't understand why companies, everybody has a frequently asked questions document. I don't understand why everybody doesn't have a frequently frequent objections document and answers to, you know, best answers to each one of them.
0: I really like that. That's, uh, it's interesting, especially some of the work that I'm doing right now. But uh, how do you balance that, John, the concept of uh, preemptive strike mm-hmm. with the concept of not, uh, don't answer the question that wasn't asked. Right, you don't want to introduce possible objections sometimes. So, how do you balance that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's comes with experience to say, okay, um, you know, where is this person in their psycho? Where are they in the evaluation process? Those type of thing, and where do I fit uh, is from a real fit standpoint? So, I think a certain amount comes with experience, but you know, it's to me, it's gonna, it's. It's all there's always going to be an objection and it's kind of like in training for me when I stand up and I train um, a bunch of reps. I I know what's a lot of you know, I'll say, hey, what questions do you all have about this? And I know I've been through this scenario enough to hear reps asking questions and maybe I got a crowd that's not not too open and, and they're very reserved or something like that. You know the questions there. You know, so so. what about this? You throw out some examples there to try to uncover it to see if it really is an objection or really is a question because it should be. <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, I love objections because it show, they're buying signs. It shows you're interested here. If you are not objecting to, to something that I, like price, timeline, any of that stuff, then there's a strong likelihood that I'm column fodder and you're just evaluating three vendors and keeping me in the game, and you've already made your decision on somebody else. So to me, no objections is a huge red flag, especially later on in the sales process. Um, and so, you know, if I'm not hearing any, I'm going to throw them out there to see what your where your head's at around that. So, you know, I think it's a feel thing, an experience, but also uh, if you're seeing, like I said, if you're seeing it on a consistent basis, or if you're feeling like there isn't something. There's something missing there. You might want to try to toss a couple out there and just get their perspective. So so where does pricing fall on your priority list? So here's an example. Somebody says, you know, I, I try to understand what your priorities are and those type of things. They're like, oh, you know, ease of use and you know, efficiencies and this type of thing. And they don't say price. Okay. Price is always an issue so i'm going to bring it up i'm going to say okay so cool thanks for those i really appreciate it just out of curiosity where does price fall on your priority list here when making this type of decision because i want to know is it is it the number one thing is it is it not a con- is it, i mean it's always something but i want to know if it's the one, two, three, four, five thing and so i'm going to say okay cool because i just want to be upfront with you we are not the cheapest solution if you told me right now that price was your number one factor of making this decision we can answer this you know we can end this conversation really fast right now But if you're telling me that these other things are more important than price, then I'm very confident that we're going to be able to put a solution in front of you. That'll make sense. And so, you know, there's just a quick example.
0: I love it. Yeah. I'm going to give you a a more of a fun one now. So uh, it seems like, John, every great salesperson has a story, remembers the one that got away, you know, a big deal that you lost. Can you tell me about one of those for you? Yeah. Yeah,
1: I got some. I mean, there's always the ones that get away, right? Um, I think I would look more at some of the ones that got away from my career standpoint, opportunities that I, because there's deals, you know, I've I've had a lot of deals that I've, eh, I've wanted that, but damn it. Um, to me, I look at the, so for instance, you brought up my, my background of working for Jack Welch for a few months and, you know, the Jack Welch to help him get his online MBA program off the ground. And he's always been my business idol. So ever, ever since I started getting into business, you know, Winning is one of my favorite books in, in business. And, you know, he's always been my, one, of my, one of my business heroes. So, so when I had the opportunity to work for him, to me, it was like, you know, part of my instinct was drop everything. You know, I had my own company going on up here, my house up here. They wanted me to move down to Florida and jump in on the startup for an online MBA program. You know, and and the offer that they gave me was more of a sales rep offer. So I kind of we work together to figure out, let's why don't we do a consulting thing? And, you know, for two months, I'll come down and consult with you on how to do this and train up and all these other things. And at the end of those two months, we'll figure out whether this makes sense for us to take the next steps. Um, And they were in a situation where they really, they they were just getting started off. They were going through accreditation issues with the school they had tied themselves to. And there was really a lot of question marks going on. So it wasn't... at the end of the two months, it was pretty evident that I wasn't a good fit for where they were, and they weren't a good fit for my skill sets either. So we kind of just parted ways friends. But the one thing that that bothered me, if you will, is one of the things that Jack talks about a lot about is candor, right, is having candor with people. And that's actually been a, one of my biggest challenges throughout my career is I, I think I'm a little bit too candid. And, you know, I don't care who you are. And the reason I got fired from Staples, when my little IT services company got bought by Staples, I mean, I got fired because, well, I got offered another position because uh, I just couldn't keep my mouth shut. Right. I I was like, this is terrible. I don't even understand why you guys do what you do here. You know, I, and I just, I I had no filter because I'm just too candid. And so working for the man, Jack Welsh, I figured, man, I can be myself finally. And I can, I can be candid. And I think the one that got away for me was at the end um, after it was pretty evident. and, And we said, okay, you know, good luck and everything, I reached back out to Susie and and I said, Susie, you know, just out of curiosity, would you be open to just uh, give me some perspective on why you didn't think I was a good fit for this role, right? I mean, it was pretty evident that, that it wasn't a good fit, but I just wanted to know, was it because I didn't, you know, execute, I wasn't a big picture enough, you know, just for my own personal and professional development. And you know she said she came back to me with something that I thought was was pretty disappointing because she's like, "Well, John, you know I reached I talked to Jack about it, and you didn't work with us for long enough for us to really give you any real insights into that, so you know we don't think it's appropriate to do and I was you know, that was one of those things I was like, Come on, yeah. really." you know, you talk about candor and all this stuff and, and you can't even spend 10 minutes on the phone with me. I'm, you know, I moved my whole family down to Florida to to work with you on this. And again, it was pretty evident that there wasn't a good fit here. You didn't need a VP of sales. You needed something different to get it to that next level, but you could have at least given me some insights about, you know, how I interacted with you, you know, what my approach was, what you liked, what you didn't like, and she wasn't open to it. So to me, that's probably the one that got away um, because I felt like I could have learned a lot more from from their feedback to me. Not in, The experience was awesome, but I, I think I could have learned a lot more from their feedback. Conversely, when I got fired from Staples, um, when I went back to talk to the guy who who ultimately was the man in charge, you know, Ron Sargent was the main guy and this guy, Jay Baitler, was the guy who ultimately was the driving force behind letting me go. I reached out to him afterwards. I say, "Hey, Jeff or Jay, out of my for my own personal development, would you mind?" And he was more than open to to having that conversation. I came in and I tell you, it was probably the best hour I've ever spent in business. He gave me insights about all sorts of different things about, you know, perception of me and what I should have been doing and why. You know, what's the risk? I wrote a blog post on it. It's called "What's the Risk," and it's probably the biggest learning lesson I've ever had in my career.
0: That's absolutely amazing. I think the best salespeople in the world they want that, that feedback, they want that coaching, and uh, it's just a shame when we can't get it. John, we're going to take a quick break uh, for a word from our sponsor. When we come back, it's going to be time for the money round. So don't go away. Sales Sooners Octave has built a sales productivity platform that streamlines the workflow for creating and managing your sales documents, everything from presentations and quotes to all of your proposals and contracts. They can pull data from your CRM, CPQ, and ERP systems, saving you time. And accelerating each sales opportunity, Octave has been around since 2010, and now serves more than 400 organizations. I'm talking global enterprises, guys like GE and Siemens, national brands like Angie's List and FedEx Office, and even industry innovators like Double Dutch and mood Bell. You've got to check them out. Go to Octave.com. That's O C T I V.com to learn more. And hey, during your demo, be sure to tell them you heard about them on the Sales Tuners podcast. All right, John, we are back. It is time for the money round. And what this is, is just, I'm going to give you a quick question. This is just right off the top of your head. If you want to go deep, you can, but I just really want to get that surface level uh, uh, answer from you. So right out of the gate, what's the one thing that has contributed most to your transformation from normal to exceptional?
1: I uh, work ethic. Uh, I'm not the brightest kid out there by any stretch of the imagination, but i work harder than almost anybody else I know. Um and that's really helped me <clears throat> get to a level that I'm at. And also I would say the just a opportunistic view on things. I don't overanalyze stuff. I have a pretty good Uh, a strong ability to assess a situation pretty quickly and take advantage of it um, and realize whether it's a good opportunity for me to follow or not. Same thing with customers. I can pretty quickly gauge whether this is a fit or not and whether this person and I are going to be able to work together. That's really made a difference in my career. Uh, So work ethic and the opportunistic view.
0: If you were to start over today in sales, what would you spend the next 30 days doing?
1: Um, I would, I mean, training, obviously getting a foundational piece of it, but I think the number one thing I'm going to bring that to starting with a company in sales is just to go talk to customers, right? To go talk to customers and learn the business before, learn, learn the value that, that whatever it is brings to the table and understand, you know, what, again, what do I believe in? Right. How can I, how can I get myself to believe in what I'm doing? And that, to me, is the critical factor there. So the structural piece is important, right? How to go through a sales process, how to understand the different stages, and to have that piece there, but also to try to look for a company and a service and a solution that I could believe in. And once I find that, then you know the skills will come. I always say passion is the number one thing I think you need, uh, and that's what I hire for, because you can't train passion, you can't train drive. You can train skills and technical abilities and all that other stuff, but... You know I want to be able to figure out something I can be passionate about and sell
0: John which of these two phrases describes you the best and why I love to win or I hate to lose <laughs> Uh, I, I would say
1: if it comes to money, it's, I hate to lose. Uh, you know, I tell my, uh, my, uh, money manager that all the time. I'm like, look, I, I d- just don't lose me money. Right. I, if you only make me three or four percentage on top, whatever, fine. But I, the money that I make, if you lose it for me, I'm going to be pissed, but that's cash, right? I think when it comes to competition, I like to win way better. Cause I, you know, everything's better when you win. Uh, And that's why I love I go back to Jack Welsh's book, you know, winning, because when you're winning, you know, problems tend to take care of themselves and and everybody feels good when you win. And I don't want to discredit that by hating to lose. I think that's a more of a negative perspective on it to say, you know, I hate to lose. Well, then you don't really enjoy the win that much. And I want to enjoy the win. There's not, there's, there's not too many wins in sales right? So you have to, you have to celebrate them when you
0: get them. And so that's why I like to win more. You just talked about winning, but I want to see there might be something else here. John, what's a book that you've read multiple times or always recommend to others?
1: Uh, I mean, winning is, is one, but uh, I, one of my favorites is called influence by Robert Cialdini. It's, um, it's not a book on sales. It's a book on psychology and why we do the things the way that we do them. And it's very directly related to sales but it's a very interesting perspective to, to think about. I like more the psychology of why people do things and that's why I, that, that's one of my favorite books.
0: Sales tuners if you would like to check out Influence or any other book, head on over to salestuners.com/book where there you can receive a 30-day free trial and the book of your choice from Audible and you can browse their 150,000 titles. Again, that's salestuners.com/book. John, what is the biggest piece of advice that you have for all the sales tuners out there grinding? Um,
1: you know, somebody asked me this, John, now that you're 40, you know, what would you tell your 22 year old self? And I'm going to go back to AB split testing. Um, back when I was, you know, making 400 dials a week, I knew my equation cold, right? Uh, I knew I needed, I had to make 400 dials to get eight, me- 400 dials a week, got me eight meetings a month, got me four proposals, got me two pieces of closed business. And I just ran that because I, and it was a numbers game to me. But now looking back on it, you know, I was making 400 blind cold calls with a generic elevator pitch. And instead, what I would do is now I would A/B split test. So I would come up with four different approaches and make 100, 100, 100, 100 and figure out which one yielded a higher response rate. And I think you can do this with anything. I said earlier, objection handling, one objection, two approaches to it, 10 times, 10 times, right? Dealing with gatekeepers, you know, in the morning, be really direct with gatekeepers. In the afternoon, be really nice to them, see what happens. By doing that, you'll start to figure out what works and what doesn't work a lot faster. And you'll also be able to figure out what works for you personally compared to everybody else because your personality is different than mine, right? John Barrow's from Boston, Massachusetts. Some of the stuff that I say and comes out of my mouth, people will be like, Are you out of your mind? There's no way I would ever say that, right? And, you know, I don't ask you to. I, I've been able to figure out what works for me by trying different things out consistently. And it also, by taking this approach, the mentality of split testing, it makes your jobs way more interesting and tolerable. Because sales, like I said earlier, is such a brutal profession. If you show up every day and you're like, oh, they're going to make my 50 dials or whatever it is today, I'll give you six months before you want to jump out the window, right? But if you show up every day and say, you know, what do I want to work on today? and come up with a couple of different approaches and and you know set some goals around that you can start to figure things out and it becomes interesting because last example is if you make 50 dials in a day and you get no meetings that's a terrible day right but if you make 50 dials and you make 25 dials with this approach and 25 dials with another approach and you still get no meetings to me actually that's not a bad day because you just figured out two approaches that don't work right? and then tomorrow you're going to come in and try two new ones and eventually you'll find something that does so if you start with that mentality earlier on in your career, you will get that much better, that much faster, um, and try to you know avoid some of the pitfalls and mistakes that I made in my career.
0: I'll get you out of here on this one, John. If someone wanted to reach out to you or connect, uh, how would they do so?
1: Yeah, you can reach me a bunch of different ways. So obviously my website, John, it's uh, jbarrows, so com. On there, you can find a ton of resources. My resource library, I put pretty much 80 to 90% of what I do out there for free, whether it's video tips or blog posts or any of that stuff. I do have an online portal that has all my training in video format. And this is stuff that, you know, exact same training that I give to Salesforce, LinkedIn Box, all those companies. You can hit me up on LinkedIn. Um, I always respond to requests there as long as you customize it and uh and then snapchat right Snapchat's something i'm getting into a lot these days because you know a huge demographic for me is that 22 to 28 year old kid making calls and that's the number one social platform for all them so i'm, I'm answering a lot of questions i love it because it's a very direct one-on-one thing so kids are snapping me questions and i'm getting right back to them so if you want to hit me up on snapchat it's john j-o-h-n-m as in michael barrows b-a-r-r-o-w-s all one word um, and like I said, I'm, I'm doing stories all day about tips and ideas and then i answering questions as they come in.
0: John, this has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for spending the time with us here and, uh, hope you have a great day.
1: Absolutely, Jim. I appreciate the time. Make it a great one.
0: All right. Like I said, we did go a little long today, but my goodness, was it filled with great stuff. I had to limit my top takeaways to four. So here they are. Number one, prospecting by simply picking up the phone. Uh, You open up a world of new opportunities. So regardless of your current pipeline, set aside time each day to continue adding new prospects to your outreach. This process helps solve a lot of problems while developing you much faster. Plus, keeping a solid pipeline puts you in a power position where you don't need the business and don't fall suspect to unnecessary discounting. Number two is time. Uh, Time is the most valuable asset any of us have. So, when reaching out to a prospect, be clear on the value you bring by doing research, asking relevant questions, sharing insights, and testing different approaches. Number three, goals. Goal setting is one of the most important things any sales rep can do in their career. Whether it's daily, weekly, monthly, or annually, write down where you want to be. It could be quota attainment, commission attainment, job title, etc. But then put a plan in place to reach that goal with actionable steps. And number four was objection handling. Now remember, don't use these words exactly, but the concept of feel, felt, found. I totally understand how you feel. Other people have felt the same way. What I found is... And this is a great way to reframe a prospect's challenge and bridge back to a key message, uh, hopefully with existing customer insight. That's it, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, you can get the show notes for all episodes at salestuners.com. And if you have any questions you'd like me to ask our guest, please tweet at me at salestuners or shoot me an email, jim at salestuners.com. And be sure to sign up for our email list where we send out expanded content and previews of upcoming guests. All right. I hope to see you next week. Until then, let's make it rain. Thanks for listening to Sales Tuners. Stay up to date at www.salestuners.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and
1: review us on iTunes.
0: And they stay there!